0: Let's read verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 20. We covered verse 1 a week before last, and then last week we had our Christmas message. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he could deceive the nations no more till the thousand years was finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We pray that you'd help us to cover everything we need to cover today. We give this time over to you and we ask that you would just speak to our hearts, that you'd feed our spirits with your word, Lord. We thank you for your word, our daily bread, our manna from heaven. Lord, bless this teaching time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick it up in verse 2. We saw the angel in verse 1 coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, great chain in his hand. And then he, the angel laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. We're doing a little bit of a recap here. Only here and in chapter 12, verse 9, is the serpent of Genesis 3 identified as the devil and Satan. So we're blessed as New Testament believers. We have both the Old and the New Testament. It's been said that Christ is in the Old Testament concealed, and in the New Testament, he is revealed. And we see here another revelation and that is that the serpent from Genesis 3 is actually the devil himself. And it reveals the many evil facets of his nature. Revelation 12:9 the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This happens, now we know that he was cast out way back. At the beginning of time, at the beginning of creation. And he's there in the garden tempting Adam and Eve. But this event in chapter 12, verse 9, takes place halfway through the tribulation. As we've seen, Satan still has limited access to God. He went before God, and God said, hey, look at my servant Job, we know how that went. But halfway through the tribulation, and we know that there's activities. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And right now, this is really interesting, another thing related to the last days, how many of you have seen all the stuff lately about UFOs and aliens, right? That's a, people are being prepped and primed for that, too. Folks, they're demons. They're demonic entities. There are no people from other planets. They are fallen angels, okay? And that's another strategy that the enemy is bringing forth in these last days to confuse and deceive people. But I shared this on Christmas Eve. I don't know how many of you were here. We had a great service, by the way. A recent survey came out showing that most Americans and many Christians, or those who identify as Christians, many Christians don't believe that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible clearly teaches that he's eternal. He's the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am, said Jesus. And yet we've got a large part of the church now, the so-called church, that doesn't believe in the pre-existence of Christ. In the Old Testament, we see him appearing over and over again as the angel of the Lord. That's called a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He appeared to Abraham, God the Father and the Son, before they went and judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He's throughout the Old Testament. He's eternal. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and yet we've got a large swath of Christians who don't believe that he preexisted. This is the problem, folks, in the church today. People don't know the Bible. They don't know the Word of God. Their theology is all twisted and skewed, and it's a scary thing. How many of you believe that he preexisted? Nobody would dare not raise their hand. <laughs> but folks, there are cardinal beliefs of the Christian faith that you and I cannot waffle on, we cannot waver on, we cannot disagree with. The virgin birth, which we just celebrated with our Christmas celebration. If Jesus isn't born of a virgin, then he's not our Savior. Because if he received... DNA from Joseph or whoever Mary slept with right? because Jesus grew up being called a bastard by the people in his own community if he didn't receive DNA from God and from Mary he can't be our savior because he would have received human DNA from the male side and the Bible teaches us that sin is passed down through the male bloodline he had to be born of a virgin the only way that could happen was by divine intervention God intervened implanted his dna into mary bringing forth the god man jesus christ if you don't believe that you're not a christian i'm sorry if you don't believe in the virgin birth if you don't believe that jesus preexisted throughout eternity past you're not really a christian you don't know your bible you don't know the real jesus because the real jesus is eternal and if you're born again the real jesus will live inside of you okay these are things there is no debate And you can identify a cult group at the drop of a hat. They don't believe in the divinity of Christ. You must believe that he's fully God, fully man. No negotiations. No negotiations. They lived a perfect, sinless life. In fact, I saw another survey a while back where almost 50% of the church believes that Jesus sinned. The Bible speaks of a great falling away in the last days. Guess what? It's right here right now. Not in this church. Because if, you, if you're part of that group, you won't stay very long. Because people don't like to hear the truth. If they don't believe the truth, they don't want to go where they're hearing the truth. Folks, if you don't have your doctrine down, work on it. One way you can work on it is by coming here every Sunday. But work on it. You need to know not what people say, not what you think. What does God say? And he's given us it all right here in the Bible. Everything we need to know is there, but you've got, to look, you've got to dig into it and learn for yourself. These are non-negotiables. Virgin birth, deity of Christ, his eternal nature, sinless, perfect sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins, and the biggie, he rose from the dead on the third day. Do you know that was the very heart of the Great Commission? you know what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do? To go out and preach the resurrection. Because if Jesus isn't risen, then again, it's, it's all gone. If he wasn't born of a virgin, if he wasn't raised from the dead, it's all over. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ isn't risen, we are to be pitied above all people. But you know what? Paul said he is risen. And therefore, we are not to be pitied because God has revealed himself to us, made himself known to us, and we have the precious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. All right. Better get back on track. I think we've gotten through a half a verse so far. And it's actually the verse that we already covered, so. All right. Five characteristics here. As we talk about the great dragon. And as mentioned, this happens halfway through the tribulation so that at this point in time, yes, Satan and his minions are active on the earth, but they're also messing around up there in the heavenlies, and part of that is this UFO phenomenon. But halfway through the tribulation, they will be cast down, and Satan's activities and those of his demonic cohorts will be (laughs) confined and isolated to planet Earth Can you imagine what that's going to be like? All of his efforts will be concentrated right here on this planet. But as a dragon, he's referred to the great dragon, dragons breathe fire, right? So he takes those who follow him into the fires of hell. As the serpent deceived Eve, so he deceives the whole world. He is the deceiver. The name devil, Diabolos, means accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. As we see in the book of Job, Revelation 12, 10. Fourthly, Satan means adversary, one who lies in wait to trap and ensnare. Now, I believe that this angel here, coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, laying hold of the dragon and so forth, is Michael, and I'll tell you why. Jude 1:9. Michael the archangel and contending with the devil. So God sent Michael to um, bury Moses after Moses had died all alone on the mountainside. The devil apparently came to try and somehow defile Moses' body. And so Michael, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. Notice that. How many of you heard these preachers that mocked the devil? Even Michael the archangel wouldn't do that. He dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said, the Lord rebuke you. You can't go wrong with that. We talked about this last time. Even Michael, he set an example for us. God is greater than us. Greater is He that is in us and He that is in the world. But we always like to have the Lord between us and the devil. The Lord rebuke you. Revelation 12, 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So Michael is the captain of the angelic army, the hosts of heaven. He has battled with Satan in the past and will defeat him in the future. Daniel 12:1. at that time, this is an end times prophetic passage. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, the Jews specifically. And there shall be a time of trouble, the tribulation such as never was since there was a nation. Jesus said the same thing. The tribulation will be a time unlike any other time in human history, and he meant that in the worst sense of the word. There should be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people, the Jews, because we talked about this before, the the two top priorities with the tribulation, one, judge an unbelieving wicked world, to restore the people of Israel unto their Messiah. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, the book of life. So, I believe this angel that is called with the key and the chain is Michael. He will be the one charged with the responsibility of binding Satan and putting him in that pit under Jesus' direction, of course. And bound him for a thousand years. This chapter 20 of Revelation has been referred to as the thousand year chapter because it's mentioned six times here. And the Latin equivalent for these words is millennium. Bound him for a millennium. Mile means thousand in Latin. And annum means years. Mile annum, millennium, one thousand years. Hence, this period of time is called the millennium. It's the time when Christ will reign on this earth. Daniel 7:14. to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Again, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And then in Zechariah 14, 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. That hasn't happened yet, but it will very soon. And that day, now he is the king over all who acknowledge him, all who receive him, all who worship him, but he's not yet king over all the earth, and he's going to be in the millennial kingdom. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Finally, Isaiah 2:4, he shall judge between the nations. There will be nations on the earth during the tribulation and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. There will be no wars during the millennial reign of Christ. The Bible tells us he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. In fact, that's the title of the message, shut him up. And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And in terms of the history of the human race, I believe we can look at the The six days of creation on the seventh day God rested. I believe that these six days represent 6,000 years of human history, which brings us right up to this current century that we're now in, the 21st century. The seventh day, the day of rest, some call this the honeymoon of the bridegroom and his bride. And that's another reason I believe we're extremely close to seeing Jesus face to face, because we've now entered in to that seventh millennium. So, and he shut him up. What a relief that will be. I can't wait for Jesus to tell the devil to shut up. Put a lid on it. He set a seal on him. Put a lid on it. A friend of mine was dating this lady and they were out having coffee and she was uh, complaining about how the coffee was too hot or too cold. I forget what it was. But he told her to put a lid on it And she thought he was telling her to shut up. It created a rift between them. He just meant put a lid on your coffee. But she didn't take it that way. So here we're going to tell the devil to put a lid on it. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And so there will be this final test for mortals living on the earth as we enter the millennial kingdom of Christ, as we've talked about before, you and I will be returning with him as immortal beings, but there will be survivors at the end of the tribulation, that's the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, the sheep are those righteous people who survive till the end of the tribulation, they will be ushered into the millennial kingdom as mortals, and then have offspring, have children to repopulate the earth. The goats, the unrighteous who survive till the end, will be cast out into outer darkness. So, there will be this final test at the end of the millennium. And the question is, during this thousand-year reign of Christ, we read in the Old Testament that a person of 100 years old be considered an infant. Remember how long people lived before the flood of Noah? That's going to come back. Because Christ is going to refurbish and rejuvenate our environment. Something that the uh, uh, environmental wackos have not been able to do and won't be able to do. Jesus is going to do it. And so there will be a return to longevity. But the question is, during this millennium, Satan is bound. He's in the bottomless pit. With no devil to deceive them, in what direction will people's hearts and minds go? And see, this is God's final process to confirm once and for all to the human race that even, you know, people say you're a product of your environment, the psychologist. You know, if you're brought up in a perfect environment with nothing but love and cuddling and hot chocolate, (laughs) then you'll grow up to be a wonderful person, right? No, because we have a sin nature, we're born in sin. And even these mortals on the earth during the tribulation will still have a sin nature. That's why Christ will rule with a rod of iron. He's got to keep a tight grip on things. But people's hearts and minds will not have been fully tested because Satan's been bound. So at the end of the millennium he'll be released for a final testing period for the human race. And then for all eternity those who pass the test will dwell with us, with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in paradise, and no one will ever be able to point the finger at God and say, that wasn't fair, you weren't fair, you didn't give me a chance. And the thing is, it's amazing, God is so gracious, so merciful, so patient, He's already given the human race 6,000 years, and we're always headed in the wrong direction. But after these things, He must be released for a little while, there will be Living mortals who will enter the millennium, they will continue to procreate, and those born on the earth during this time will have untested hearts, and those must be tested. Before they can become immortal, like us, and enter the new heaven and the new earth, their allegiance to Christ must be confirmed. Revelation 20, verse 7, jumping ahead of us from where we are today. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, Verse 8, and will go out to deceive the nations. You think, Oi, they are you kidding me again? We're gonna have deception again? Yes. It's the final test. But back to verse four. I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Thrones. I saw thrones They that sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. First of all, this applies to the twelve apostles. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, the twelve, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, he's talking about the millennium, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But there's more to this. Not only do the 12 apostles sit in judgment, specifically on the 12 tribes of Israel, but all believers. 1 Corinthians 6 2, Paul writes, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? fallen angels, how much more things that pertain to this life. And so, the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and then all believers will also be in conjunction with Jesus. We saints will be tasked alongside him with judging the rest of the nations, the Gentile nations. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him if we deny him he will also deny us and i would propose to you that denying him does not necessarily mean outright saying no i don't believe in jesus i don't believe he's the son of god and all that but if you deny any of those cardinal christian doctrines that i talked about earlier in my opinion you're you're denying him if you question any part of his word well you know i think most of the bible is true To me, you're denying him. If you deny his virgin birth, if you deny his resurrection, if you deny any of these non negotiable doctrines, then in my opinion, you are denying him. Okay? If you endure, to endure means that you hold fast to everything that the Bible says. You don't deny one aspect of God's holy word, you don't replace it with any man made doctrine any reinvented Christianity. You hold firm to the end. And if you do that, not only will you be saved, because the Bible does say he that endures to the end will be saved, you will also reign with him. So we see the thrones, we see the 12 apostles, of course Jesus on his throne, but you and I will also be there alongside of Jesus to judge the nations. And so... Maybe if we focused on these things more, we would take our beliefs, our Christianity, our time here on earth a little more seriously because God is in the process now of preparing us for what lies ahead, the millennial kingdom of Christ and beyond that, eternity. I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. And so it's very clear that to take a stand for Jesus during the tribulation will in most cases result in martyrdom, specifically by beheading. The souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. And so another reason I encourage people, get right with God now. If you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, If you've not confessed your sins before him and repented and asked him to come and live inside of you. By the way, that's the full gospel message. You don't hear very many preachers teaching it today. We hear that Jesus loves us, which is true. God loves you. Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, God loves you. But that's part of it. That's part of the gospel. Jesus himself, as well as John the Baptist before him, When they came forth preaching publicly in Israel 2,000 years ago, the very first words out of their mouth were, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The full gospel has to include all of that. We are encouraged. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God does his part, but we have a part to play too it's not a hard part well for some people it is that's why more people don't follow Christ because it's not that easy to humble yourself and admit that you're a dirty rotten filthy piece of garbage that doesn't fly with the psychological community that doesn't fly you know with the self-help groups that doesn't fly with the groups who say you got to build up your self-esteem the only way you can get built up is to be totally torn down Do you know that You've got to be torn down to the ground. You've got to come to the place where you absolutely realize that there's nothing good in you. But God is nothing but good. And He will lovingly, graciously, mercifully impart His goodness to you if you will humble yourself before Him, confess your sins, repent, which means to turn and go the other way, which you cannot do without God's help. And... Invite Him to come and live inside of you that you be born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus said you must be born again. It's not optional. I remember back in the Jimmy Carter days, for those of you in my age group, well, I was so excited. I, I grew up in a red state, Arizona. It's turning purple now, unfortunately. It's all the Californians coming in. God loves Californians. I don't know why. No, I just... No, there's a lot of good people in California. And then some not so good ones. Grew up in a red state. Everybody in Arizona was Republican back in those days. But as a young adult believer, you know, Jimmy Carter came out publicly and said he was a born-again Christian and all this. I was real excited about that. But as a result, that's around the time, you know, we're coming out of, at the tail end of the Jesus Movement and Jimmy Carter is running for president and says, I'm born again. And then he does an article for Playboy magazine, which I guess he figured, hey, there's an opportunity there. I don't know. I mean, he didn't pose nude or anything. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) So even though I grew up in a red state, all Republicans, I had planned on voting for Jimmy Carter because of his faith. But then I was on tour in Australia and I didn't get to vote anyway. I didn't know about absentee balloting. I don't know if we even had it back then. I'm not sure. But so I didn't get to vote. But I remember that all of a sudden, the whole term born again became a really big deal. And then you had people saying, well, I am, a, I am religious or I am a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-againers. Like that to be born again was like radical, extreme, you know, over the top. I hate to tell you, there's only one kind of Christian a born-again Christian. As uh, the late, great J. Vernon McGee used to say, you're either a saint or an ain't. Long before it was ever applied to the New Orleans Saints. During their difficult years, they've been doing great the last few years, but there was a time when they called the Saints, the New Orleans Saints, the ain'ts, and people actually wore bags over their heads when they went to the football game. I'm afraid there's some Christians that maybe not literally, but at least mentally, psychologically, go around with bags over their heads. They don't want to admit that they're a follower of Christ. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father in heaven. Notice, they were beheaded for their witness to Jesus, a non-compromising witness, by the way, and for the word of God. The true believer will not only testify of Jesus, but will also take a stand for the veracity and validity of God's word. The whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. So when they come for you, if they do, if we're not raptured first, you better not be found saying anything like, well, yeah, I used to kind of read the Bible, but I know know, know it's mostly just a bunch of Folk tales and myths and so forth. I never took it literally. I mean, you know, that's not going to cut the mustard, folks. They were beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the Word of God. Again, people love to use Jesus' name, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, An awful lot of times in a bad way. They use it like a swear word. But again, we see here, folks, the true believer will not. Only testify of Jesus, but will also take a stand for the veracity and validity of God's word. Again, we see these martyrs here of the tribulation as a separate and distinct group in this regard. Now, they also lived and reigned with Christ for a 1,000 years. But it would appear that they don't receive their resurrection bodies until the end of the tribulation. Makes sense. They're martyred during the tribulation, they will receive their resurrected glorified bodies at the second coming of Christ, whereas we will be resurrected at the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation. So that's one distinction. And we also, it seems to be, the indications are that the Old Testament righteous are probably also resurrected at the end of the tribulation along with the martyrs. Uh, we read in Daniel 12, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then, interestingly, in verse 5, the rest of the dead would be those who were not believers, the unrighteous dead. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Notice, I don't know about in your Bible, but in my New King James that I use, that phrase is in parentheses. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the wicked dead who will be raised and judged after the millennium, which makes sense because at the end of the millennium, when Satan is unleashed for a little while to deceive the nations, there'll be another, a whole other batch of unbelievers who will have to be judged. And so God is saving up this final judgment until after the millennium, notice the rest of the dead did not come to life and so there's everyone will be resurrected did you know that if you thought it was just the believers no everyone will ultimately be resurrected the only difference is the unrighteous are resurrected unto eternal punishment okay cuz the bible does speak of torment a lot of people have identified that as an mental and emotional and spiritual torment But I think the scriptures indicate it also includes physical torment. God has created us, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus came in human form, and he was resurrected from the dead as a promise to us that we will be resurrected also. Everything in God's universe is balanced, it's equal, and therefore if the righteous are raised physically as well as spiritually, then the unrighteous will be raised physically, only it will be unto eternal punishment he speaks here in verse 5 this is the first resurrection this refers back to the end of verse 4 the first resurrection includes all the righteous dead who will be raised before the millennium begins from Jesus himself up to the rapture and the second coming and there will be some who will die during the millennium There will be some who come to the end of the millennium as mortals who will have to be transformed. So this first resurrection, there's a first resurrection, a second resurrection. The first resurrection is for the righteous, but it comes in several stages. The second resurrection is for the unrighteous. So everyone will be raised, some for eternal life, some for eternal punishment. Daniel 12.2, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 6, this is our last verse today. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death. So there's two resurrections and two deaths. The second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous in Christ, takes place in several stages the first stage was actually the resurrection of jesus himself first corinthians 15 20 now christ i referenced this earlier now christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep so jesus we know lazarus was raised others were raised but jesus was the first fruits he was the first one to be raised from the dead never to die again He's the firstfruits. His resurrection testifies of our impending resurrection. So he was the first stage. And then the saints at the rapture will be the next phase or stage of the first resurrection. See, that's why you really need to study the Bible. Somebody might see this term, first resurrection, and think um, of it in a very limited sense. But it actually happens in stages. First Jesus then the saints at the rapture of the church, and then the tribulation martyrs and Old Testament saints at the second coming of Christ. And then we could even add to that more than likely those who died during the millennium who are believers at the very end of the millennium. Over such, the second death has no power. Some people who choose not to believe in God, not to follow God, not to honor God, are placing their hope in something we call soul sleep. In other words, their hope, it's funny, they'll refuse to put their hope in God, but then they're hoping that death is just like falling asleep. Now, for the believer, it is. The New Testament term for death for a believer is they fell asleep. And then we wake up in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus. But for the non-believer, they're hoping that you fall asleep and you never wake up. There's just nothing, nothingness, Forever. No hell, no punishment. Now, if they're so afraid of hell, why can't they believe in heaven? But they're putting their hope in soul sleep that after this life there's just nothing, so I'll never be punished for my sins. Doesn't work that way. Those who are born twice. Notice it says the second death has no power. If you're a believer... The worst that can happen to you is physical death, and like I said, that's a promotion. And then you're with God, and then ultimately you will receive your eternal, glorified, immortal, imperishable body. Those who were only born once in this life, Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. But if you're not born again, those who were born once in this life will die forever. It's an eternal living death you will be conscious but you will not be happy but those who are born twice in this life will live forever with God and Christ so we have a choice to make every human being if you want to live forever if you only want to die once and believe it or not that that first death the physical death is not the worst part it's the second death the eternal state of a consciousness, and eternal torment. That's the second death and that's the worst. But if you're born twice, born physically into this world and then born spiritually by the Spirit of God, then you will not experience the second death. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. So part of our service to God during the millennium, and again, if we would really get this embedded into our hearts and minds, it probably would affect how we live here on earth in a positive way. Part of our service to God during the millennium will be to act as his priests, a holy function. Because the priesthood under Christ has been imparted to every believer. It's no longer just the role of the Jewish priesthood. We are all priests. 1 Peter 2, 9, your chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, a royal priesthood. And so that speaks of the duality of our function, priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Our other function will be that of rulers over the nations. So again, God is trying to get us ready, prepare us, and we get so distracted by the things of this world. We need to be more focused on our future, which is not that far away at this point, where we will be ruling and reigning with him for a thousand years. Now, at the end of the millennium, after Satan's loosed, the people of this world, their hearts are tested. Some will fail, some will fall. But then the Bible tells us, and we'll get to this, we're not there yet in Revelation, that God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. All this existing universe will be incinerated God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with Him forever in the new Jerusalem. And at that point, there won't be any need for rulers because there will no longer be nations. We'll just be one big happy family. I call it God's forever family. Let's stand. Uh, uh, Before I pray... If you have a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand. Okay, God sees every hand. There's quite a few. Yep, okay. I was going to mention, too, that uh, our good brother Rex got to come home from the hospital. And um, is improving. He is on oxygen, but that happens with a lot of people uh, post-COVID. Four liters, which is not too bad at all, but we'll keep Rex in prayer as well. Father... We lift up to you now our brother Rex and everyone else that's been affected by this virus, Lord. There seems to have been a tremendous outbreak just recently as these new variants keep coming along. But Lord, again, we ask that you'd help us to cast out all fear. Lord, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But we pray for those that are, either have recovered or at least have gotten over the virus, but we know there can be after effects. We pray for healing for those who are still struggling with it, as well as those who have gotten through it, that any lingering after-effects would be healed as well. Lord, we know there are coughs, there are lung issues, there are aches and pains, a number of things that seem to plague people even after they've conquered the virus initially. So we do pray for healing for every one of them. Lord, you know who they are, and I'm sure that in this room, different ones have different people in their hearts and minds. We lift them all up to you now, God, and we pray for complete healing and restoration. And we pray for comfort and strength and healing for those who have recently lost a loved one as well, Lord. This has been a very difficult time, but we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your peace. And we know that you will carry us through these times. And we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face. Lord, I lift up other health issues this morning. Anyone that might be struggling with whatever it could be, Lord, a cold, a flu, a virus, cancer, blood disease, lung disease. Lord, there are so many afflictions, but we know these bodies are temporary. They weren't built to last forever, and ultimately they do break down. But we pray for your mercy, for your grace, for your peace, and your healing to come upon each one. Lord, whether it's someone in this room or someone that we're thinking about at home, someone out of state. Wherever they are, Lord, we know that you you can reach them no matter where they are, and we pray that you pour out your spirit upon them. Pray for uh, comfort and peace for those struggling with anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Lord, there's a whole range of emotions that we human beings go through, and we just ask you to touch each heart, each mind. Lord, you said that you would uh, give us the mind of Christ, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we pray for each one who's struggling in that area that you would touch them today. Uplift them, Lord, strengthen them, we ask in Jesus' name. Lord, for financial issues, again, we call upon you. You promise to provide for our needs. Lord, sometimes we get in the way. We we make bad choices, bad decisions. We ask your forgiveness, and we ask for your provision that we can have those things that we need in this life, in this world, Lord. So just encourage those who are struggling right now. We pray that you'd provide for them. Give them wisdom on how to better their situation through uh, hard work and good choices. But Lord, when we fall short, we, we know, we thank you that you're there to fill the gap, bridge the gap. Pray for relationships that are struggling, marriages, friendships, work relationships, Lord, that you'd help us to be instruments of your peace, to be peacemakers, Lord, to be the first to humble ourselves and ask forgiveness, even if we haven't done anything wrong, Lord. Help us to be like Jesus and to be initiators of peace and reconciliation. We pray for healing of these relationships, Lord, especially marriages that we know the enemy loves to attack. Lord, help us to each examine our own hearts rather than pointing the finger at our our spouse or our significant other. Lord, that we would um, examine our own hearts and minds and allow you to do that transformational work in us that will make us the kind of person That's conducive to a healthy relationship. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all the things that you do for us and in us. We give you glory and honor and praise. We thank you for this great celebration of Christmas that we've just come through. And we pray that that spirit of Christmas would reside within our hearts and minds every day all year long. And now we lift up to you our final offering of praise in Jesus' name, amen.